Hello, everyone. Welcome back as we continue our journey. We're going to dive in further with our conversation about grief of the sinner. Now we're looking at common misunderstandings and diving into the heart of grief. I love this series and I'm watching how it's unfolding as God speaks life into the message he builds in me each week. It's really exciting. Now, as I'm sitting here, it's the most beautiful day outside. It's warm and slightly breezy. The sun is shining. It's the kind of day that brings promise to a new season. The smell of spring overwhelms my senses, and it makes me long for more days exactly like this and more time to enjoy them. Days like this are good for long drives with the window down or walks on the beach with a cozy sweatshirt and bare feet. It is also the kind of day that can be difficult if I don't keep my focus. Spring has always been one of the more triggering seasons for me. I love the weather, but somehow my emotions become more prominent and I am aware of a shift in the daydreams I can have. I haven't yet figured out what specifically causes the triggers, but I am aware of them. I find it difficult to put the feeling into words. So much of my upbringing was spent minimizing or hiding my feelings that I began to develop what's called frozen feelings. My emotions were hidden under all my acting out sexually, hidden under alcohol and inappropriate relationships. Even after years spent in recovery, I still struggle with identifying what I am feeling sometimes, and some of my gauges are faulty, like guilt. I have a faulty guilt gauge. Often, I carry burdens that are not mine, and sometimes I lack responsibility for the things I should be responsible for. I struggle with the feelings of grief also. Knowing what they are, when they're present, and not confusing them with other physical sensations. In fact, guilt and grief often intertwine for me and become a tangled mess that make it difficult to work through. To understand this a little better, I want to turn in scripture to 2 Samuel chapter 11. Now stay with me here as we dive into the story of David a little before coming to the point of this message. We're going to start in verse 1. In the spring, at a time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. So we know that here they are in the middle of a war, and David chooses to stay behind. I can't speak for David and why he chose to stay behind, but I'm imagining him being tired. If you read in the chapters prior to this, he was a busy guy. Never mind the fact that he defeated Goliath and when he was younger and then when he ran from Saul who was out to kill him, but he hadn't been sitting out of every battle. But here we are, it's springtime and he's taking a break. Maybe he's exhausted. Perhaps his defenses are down. In verse 2, we continue. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone 
to find out about her. The man said, She is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Okay, so David has now felt the trigger of desire, but then finds out that the woman he wants to get to know is not only married, but married to Uriah, who is one of his most loyal soldiers. Still, David pursues her. Verse 4 says, Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now move to verse 5, and we begin to see the consequences of that sin. It says, The woman conceived and said word to David, saying, I am pregnant. Whoops. Now if we continue reading, we see just how loyal Uriah is. Okay, so David sent for him and tried to trick him to go home to be with his wife. You see, if David could convince Uriah to sleep with his wife, David could cover up the fact that he slept with her. He could trick Uriah into believing that the baby she was carrying was his. But Uriah refused to go. In verse 9, it says, But Uriah slept at the entrance of the palace with all his master servants and did not go down to his house. So David questions Uriah about this. In essence, he's saying, hey, what are you doing? Why didn't you go home? I can almost picture his face and hear the growing nervousness in his voice. Hey, you're ruining my plan. So it's time to step it up. David invites Uriah to stay with him another day, and he gets him drunk. But again, Uriah did not go home. So now David's probably pretty fed up. In verse 14, we read, In the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, Put Uriah out in front, where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him, so he will be struck down and die. So tricking Uriah didn't work. The next step in covering his sin was to have Uriah killed. Bathsheba mourned her husband's death but then went to become David's wife, and she delivered a son. Now, at this point in the story, it's easy to think that maybe David got away with something here. Maybe it was extreme, but David found a way to cover up his affair with Bathsheba, and now he was married to her, so all was good. Until chapter 12, when Nathan delivers a message from God. You see, God loved David enough to not let him get away with what he did. God knew that if David did not confess and repent, then he would not be the great leader he created him to be. So Nathan begins telling a story. Now listen to this story for a moment. There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food and drank from his cup and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. 
Scripture says David burned with anger at this man in the story. He was so angry at the rich man in the story for his selfishness and his actions. Isn't it so much easier to see the wrong in someone else? So Nathan reminds David that he was that man. He was the man in the story. He delivers this message from God in verses 7 through 9. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. I read this and I can't even begin to put into words how powerful that is. How many times have I done the same? My actions may have been slightly different in nature, but not my motives. God has given me so much. God has blessed me in so many ways. And I have seen his mercy and his grace, even with the worst of me. I have taken what was not mine. I have lusted after things and determined to have them for myself. I've tried everything to get out of my sin, to cover it up. I've killed relationships and opportunities in my pursuit of looking righteous to others. Now, moving into verse 11, God makes it clear to David that there will be long-term consequences because of his actions. Then in verse 13, David confesses. He says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Now stay with me here. Nathan replies, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this, you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. Verse 15. After Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had borne to David, and he became ill. David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted and spent the nights lying in sackcloth on the ground. In verse 18, on the seventh day, the child died. Now watch how David responds. In verse 20, it says, Then David got up from the ground. After he had washed, put on lotions, and changed his clothes, he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he went to his own house, and at the request they served him food, and he ate. Think about what just happened here. How incredible this is. Things got out of hand so fast. David's choice to stay behind led to a trigger, which caused a chain reaction of sinful choices, including adultery, murder, lies, deceit. But God loved David enough to not let him get away with this. God is a loving God, but he is also a just God. And there are consequences to sin, even after repentance. And sometimes that consequence is is loss, and that loss requires grief. 
Just as with David, God loves us enough to not allow us to get away with sin. I have felt the consequences of sin through loss, but I have not understood the process of grief as David so wonderfully did. There's two pieces to David's process of grief. First, he grieved his sin against the Lord. We saw that in chapter 2, verse 13, in his confession. Then he feels the very human pain when his son died. But we see his actions and wonder, just as his servants did, how did he do that? How did he get up after such a loss, wash and eat and worship God and move forward with his life? How did he not get angry with God and rage, proclaiming that life isn't fair? Because he recognized that he had sinned against God and that this was a consequence for his sin. David knew that he deserved death, but that God had spared his life. David knew that he was forgiven, allowing him to release the grip that guilt could have had on him, the guilt that could have prevented him from moving forward. David understood something that most of us fail to internalize. No matter how much we have sinned or how far we have traveled down a dangerous path, God forgives us. We are already forgiven. When Jesus sacrificed his life on the cross for us, we were spared from death. That means that when we confess our sins, we no longer need to feel guilty. Guilt is meant to remind us that we need to make a change. But once we've made that change, guilt is no longer necessary. And we are able to be free from it. Imagine that. Imagine that for a moment, that guilt that prevents us from fully grieving and from grieving in a way that allows us to move forward with life and to worship God. Because we know that throughout all of this that we're experiencing and that loss and that grief, that God is still a good God. Imagine that. Admission of wrong choices and repentance from a life that is not pleasing to God and feeling free of guilt. Because I wonder if that guilt clouds the grieving process. Would David have been able to clearly see the loss for what it was, feel the pain, then move forward with full intention of living a life pleasing to God, if he was still feeling guilty for his sin. What would it look like if we could let go of the guilt as David did? If we could really recognize our freedom in Christ? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I know how I have sinned against you. I come before you today asking that in repentance the chains of guilt are also freed. I know that even in consequence of sin where loss is felt, without guilt, I am free to grieve. Thank you for your sacrifice, for your gift. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Thank you for joining me today. Next week, we journey through the life of Job. God bless.